Take a deep breath. I'm glad that y'all are here. It's good to see you. Love you guys. All right, jumping in. So the idea, this we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about risk, right? Risk being this idea of, uh, of not risking for risk's sake, right? We know risk can be something that's dangerous, something that costs us something, that's something that's dangerous to us, right? It can be, a cost, it can be the, the risk of reputation, the risk of financing, the risk of our lives, right? We see that again and again in the New Testament, the risk of our lives. But risk is we don't ever risk, and risk for us is all about the kingdom, it's all about being obedient to Jesus, doing the things that Jesus ultimately would, would call us to. We're risking for him. We're risking for him in our life. So our life makes a difference, right? So we're, and we say we never risk for risk's sake. We don't go, oh yeah, I'm going to be risking for Jesus, you know, and we do something stupid without being led by Jesus into it, right? Risk is always an, a response. Risk for, with, with Jesus is always a response. It's a response to obedience. Jesus said, I don't do anything except that which I see my Father in heaven doing. Jesus basically was saying, I only risk when I see the Father leading me into it. Right? I only do something if I know the Father's calling me to do it. I'm only risking if I really feel convicted inside of me. This is the direction that God is calling, the Father's calling me to go. And so Jesus did. We said for him, Risk, although it was dangerous, it wasn't that dangerous. Why? Because father was with him, right? I used to stand at the top of the stairs. My dad say, go to the basement. I'm like, that's risky business, dad. I'm not going to go down there with, I'm not going to go down there unless you go with me. My dad would go with me into the basement, right? Everybody knows what's, everybody knows what's in the basement, right? But my dad, he would come with me and those things didn't scare me, right? As much. Why? Because my dad was with me and he was six foot four, 215 pounds. He could beat him up. I would felt safe, right? And so risk for us, risk for us has that mentality, at least it did for Jesus. He would risk in his life in obedience to the Father, but it was not too overwhelming. Why? Because the Father was going with him. The Father was leading him. So let's press pause and just simply say, do you live every day with the real conviction that the Father's with you? Do you? I don't, I don't, that's not like, like to condemn you. I, I just, I wonder if you've ever asked or ever thought about that. Do you wake up, like I wake up every morning. This is a true story. I wake up, this is a trant learned thing over time. I wake up every morning in some degree say, good morning, Holy Spirit. How are you? Good morning, Jesus. What's going on? What are you speaking? Every morning when I wake up, the very first thing that I do before wishing go back to sleep, right? Or after wishing I back to sleep. That's my first thought. Let's be honest, right? It's like, oh, it's way too early. And then I say, Jesus, what's going on? I wake up every morning expecting that God woke me up for a reason. Do you wake up like that? I would encourage you to try that. Just like, even if it feels cheesy, tomorrow morning when you wake up, just say, Oh, good morning, Jesus. What are you thinking this morning? Just ask him. Right? Because every morning he speaks to me. This morning I woke up and had a 15-minute just mental wrestling with some of the God, things that God was speaking in the moment. Right? Talk about starting your day right. I'm sitting there not, not thinking, oh, I hate work. I don't want to go to work today. I hate the people at Vintage, right? Something like that, right? No, I wake up every morning. And again, not to seem super holy. There are some mornings I'm like, Jesus, I really do not want to get up and I don't want to hear from you this morning. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Have honest conversations with the Lord. It helps, right? Everyone knows what you're thinking. Sit up, Jesus. So then do you live, you wake up and live every day right like this. I expect... Do you live every day expecting the Father to speak to you about what's going on in his life for you today? You can. 
right? That's the beauty of it. I'm not, it's like a, there's no magic beans that I can just plant and show it to you, right? There's no magic beanstalk to get you to heaven to hear God's voice. It's literally just wake up tomorrow and say, Jesus, how are you this, how are you this morning? How are you? You have feelings and emotions because he has them. How are you this morning, Jesus? How are you feeling? It's a, it's a, it's a massive shift in relationship. You know it. How many of you have people who they never ask you how you're doing, but they expect you to ask, they expect you to ask them how they're doing? It's amazing in relationship when you shift and actually start asking Jesus how he's doing. He won't be shocked because he's all-knowing and omnipotent. Knows you, he knows you're going to ask him that. But it's still this wonderful dynamic. Ask him. Okay? Anyway, this is Jesus having this conversation. I do what I see the Father doing. He's with me. I can live in expectation of the Father going with me in all these things. Right? So we've been saying that. We've been saying that um, and so with risk, then, I would say this. Risk, then, always has an expression. Okay, risk always has an expression. I'm expressing it. It always has. It's always connected to an action. What's that mean? Express. I express my feelings. There's always an. There's always an outward something with it, right? So, so, so risk always has an expression, right? That that risk is never risk until it's put into emotion. So, if I use the analogy I used last week of of going of going um, um, skydiving, right? I mean, I may sit here this morning with Randall and say, hey, babe, let's, let's get someone to watch the kids today and let's go skydiving, right? This is the day. I just feel it's like, ooh, it's exciting. Thing. Ooh, I'm so excited. Let's go. We're going to be dangerous. We're risking today, right? So we're like, get in the car. We drive over to the airport, right? We sign the waivers that say, you're going to die today, possibly. Are you okay with that? Yes, right? It's risk, right? We're going to risk today for this excitement and joy of danger, right? So we get over there and we put on the big vest thing. They give you those cheesy goggles you put on and stuff. They put the strap the parachute on to you, right? And then because you can't do a, t- you can't do a single jump, you got to do an awkward tandem jump the first time, right? You get up there and you get connected to somebody else who's the ultimate professional and you get in the airplane and they take off and then about, you know, about 8,000 feet, they, they slide the door open and the fresh air comes in. It's really cold outside and you're sitting there thinking, we're risking, we're risking, we're risking, right? We go over to the door, you look down, 10,000 feet below right there are all the little people and you sit there and you're like i can't do this you see the reality is this risk is not risk until you actually take the leap everything else leading up to it is just leading up to risk and so risk must have an activity it must have an expression it must have the movement forward to obedience. Jesus could have gone through hell, got to the cross and said, no, I don't really want to do the cross thing, right? And there would have been no risk involved in that. Risk is only risk when it's expressed in action with our obedience. So for us, we've been saying that spiritual risk is simply our response to obedience, right? We're not risking for risk's sake, but we are being obedient, and it's active. It's an expression of my life, making a decision, and then actually following through with it. Risk has to be active in its expression, right? We must be actively listening, actively pursuing, actively moving, actively following, and actively acting out what God is calling us to do. You see, our lives cannot be marked by passivity because that's living in hell. They must be marked by obedience 
hear that, obedient activity. Expressing with our life in action of who we are, expressing that every moment of every day. In fact, it's interesting when reading scripture. Have you ever read, really read through the Bible? Have you ever read any stories of obedience that are passive in nature? I mean, think about it. Just kind of go from the beginning, right? Kind of, you gotta take Adam and Eve out of the equation, right? But, but you take, so next you got like, um, uh, you got, you have Noah. Right, Noah, God says, build the ark. He puts all the stuff together and says, well, I'm actually going to build the boat because that, that's kind of a risk. You know, people are going to think I'm weird, right? So I'm going to God, just make the boat for me. No, no, actively putting nails or wooden stakes into the wood to put the boat together. Abraham, listen, God said, leave Ur to a place I'm calling you to. Oh, no. No, no, I'm just going to stay here and take, this is Ur's my promised land, right? No, no, he had to actively leave Ur, not knowing where he's going, Moses. I mean, Moses, poor Moses, right? Can't even speak that well. He actively went up to the burning bush. He actively took off his shoes when the father told him to. He actively went back in fear and then actively went to Pharaoh, right, at risk of his life and and, and then he actively stood there at the Red Sea and said, the army's coming. Moses, lift your hands. Okay, here we go. Actively list them so the sea can part. Jesus, Jesus actively came. He actively died. Think about the disciples. Jesus said, here, here are some loaves and fishes. And they're like, oh, no, what's the mob going to do when I run out uh, right? Going around, here's some fish and bread, be nice to me, I love you. Here's some bread and fish. And, right? and all of a sudden, like, actively giving it away, actively being obedient. See, there's always action associated with this risk. And so for our lives, when we talk about being obedient, talk about risk, it's always, there's always an expression and action to it. Things that we have to embrace as it relates to risk. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to focus on three expressions of risk. Three things that when you risk, you're going to have to be aware of. Three things that you're going to have to dive into. Three things you're going to have to embrace in your risk. Let me say this, everyone listen. God is calling you to a life of obedient risk so that your life isn't hell on earth. Passivity is hell because you're not making a difference. You're not fulfilling your call that God has on your life. So the first thing that we see is this. The first risk is the risk of devotion. The risk of devotion. Gordon MacDonald said in an article this past month in Leadership Magazine, he was writing an article about this. What, and hear this, what a truly transformed Christian looks like. What a great article to write. When you look at a person, how do you know if they are truly a transformed Christian? And, one, and this is what he said. There's like 12 or 13 or 18, I can't remember. He says, one trait is an undiluted devotion to Jesus. Hear that again. One trait is an undiluted devotion to Jesus. And he goes on to say this, that he prefers to use the word devotion over the word love, because it's hard, at least in our culture, to escape the sentimental flavoring in the word love, right? He said devotion. 
devotion infers a determination that a person will organize his or her life around Jesus in every part of themselves. Read that again, right? He said devotion, right? This risk of devotion means that a person has a a determination that they will organize his or her life around Jesus in every part of themselves. What's the trait of a fully devoted follower of Jesus? It's a person who has devoted every part of their being, right? Their free time, right? Their, their, their pleasures in life, their joys, their, their resources, their home, every energy they have, the clothes that they wear, the car that they drive, everything is devoted to Christ, determined with everything inside of them. And he goes on to say, he said, listen, he said, therefore, devotion is not devoid of emotion, right? Devotion is not devoid of emotion, but it is never defined by it either. The greatest tragedy, the greatest tragedy is that we have interpreted love in our culture to be about how I feel about something, right? We're talking about love for the next seven weeks or whatever, how long it is. And the idea of it is simply this. We want to define for you biblically what biblical love looks like. What biblical love looks like. That it's a determination to be obedient to Jesus, to devote everything that I have to him. And if there's something that I believe that's countercultural to what the news tells me that I should embrace and should enjoy, I will be devoted to Christ first because love for Jesus defines my devotion, not how someone feels in culture. Goes on and he tells the story here in Luke 14, 25 through 27. This is going to be hard for us on the, on the surface to hear, okay? Luke chapter 14, 25 through 27 says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, does not hate his wife and children, does not hate his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Listen, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is coming and saying, listen, if you don't hate the people who are most important in your life, you can't be my disciple. And we look at that and say, well, Jesus, you just said before, you got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. All these people obviously represent my neighbor. And you said to love people as I love myself, but you're saying here I can't even love myself. What in the world are you getting at? Well, Jesus was really good in these forms, got a, a, a teaching and speaking to kind of the exaggeration to kind of wake people up. If I look at you and say, Bill, I hate you this morning. Like, Whoa, hey, what are you talking about, right? But the idea is simply the comparison. Matthew does a a really good job of painting this picture. He He says, even when you love your husband and wife, even as you love your husband, if you don't love Jesus more. So what we get at is this. The word hate here does not have this literal hate that we use in our culture, but it really means completely to love less. To love less. And so the word, so the idea, essence, Jesus is saying this. If you're going to follow me, then everything you love in this world, you must love it 
less. Hate does bring about that level of, um, of uh, the, the, the level of it, right? Hate's a really powerful and big word. So it shows that our love then for Jesus should so excel and supersede my love and devotion to anyone else that if anyone else, anything, whether it's my government, whether it's my spouse, whether it's my parent, Put, pushes some agenda in front of me that's opposed to my conviction about who I'm called to be as a Christ follower, then I must always choose Jesus because my love for him supersedes my love for anyone else. So listen, your obedience to Jesus supersedes anything else. That's why Listen, back in the day when people had, listen, you're going to hate me for this, right? But when people had a religious conviction about pacifism, then I would land in their camp with them and say, if that truly, truly is your biblical conviction, which you can make a very strong argument for pacifism in Scripture... If you believe that, and there's a real true biblical conviction, rather than this, you just don't want to go fight, then I will stand behind you in that, because that is your conviction before God, that you should turn the other cheek. And I will stand behind that, and your government should not define that for you. Now, some of you hate what I just said, but my religious conviction, Jesus' religious conviction made him live opposed to the Pharisees. You said, you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath because you're working. He says, I'm not defined by what man thinks, but I'm defined simply by the conviction that I have before Father God. You must hate father, mother, sister, brother, even your wife or your, your husband, even your own children in comparison to your love for me. There's a risk to devotion. There is a risk to devotion. Those who have made a, 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 a biblical stance on the issue of homosexuality, who are opposed to culture, they stand there. Why? Because they've made a religious, biblical conviction. And I will, we stand behind their biblical conviction. And we celebrate it. And say, thank you for standing on your biblical conviction. And who cares what culture says? Celebrate Chick-fil-A. Why? Because he took a biblical stance, a biblical conviction about what he believes, and we celebrate that. Because when he stands before God, he will be clean because he stayed true to his biblical conviction, and we will never stand against him. You stand behind the risk of devotion. Jesus at one point says, do not suppose I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He then goes on to say that in the, in the, in, that his presence or the presence of Jesus in a person's life will mean that a father, a mother, a children, a spouse may hate the other because of the devotion to Jesus. How many of you know today that in Islamic countries, it's if, if a Muslim decides to follow Jesus, they are disowned by their family at best and murdered at worst. It's happening. It happened today. Someone's dying today because of their conviction that Jesus is the only way. They're dying right now. They were just killed. Someone either just chopped their head off or shot them because 
Jesus is their conviction. And Jesus is saying, yes, I did not come to bring peace because my gospel will ultimately bring peace to the world through bloodshed, unfortunately, through suffering, unfortunately, but it will cause division. History shows us that. God, Jesus did not come, right? People disowned. Our devotion to Jesus is a risk if we are fully devoted to him and don't allow any other love to get in the way. The second thing we find is this. It's a risk of discomfort. Obviously, discomfort is easy to express, right, in Jesus' life. We see his obedience to death on a cross. That's the ultimate pinnacle, right, of, of discomfort, But we recognize as human beings, we hate discomfort, don't we? That's why when you're getting on an airplane, you pray that you're either in bulkhead or you're on the emergency exit row, right? Because you hate to be cramped, right? You sit there in coach and you're looking up to the wispy, wispy curtain keeping you from first class or business class. Just going, oh, someday, someday, right? And they close the curtain, you know, they're getting a bottle of wine. Each person's getting their own bottle of wine. They're getting their own philosophy. Lay mignon up there, right? And a lobster on the left side, right? They're getting everything up there. And I'm getting some stupid peanuts, right? And some water. It's lukewarm even. Give me some ice. Come on, right? We like to be comfortable. But the risk of following Jesus is discomfort. Scripture teaches clearly that true disciples of Christ, they will suffer discomfort. In Acts chapter 5, it says they celebrated. The disciples celebrated. They were able to suffer disgrace for Christ's name. Acts 9 says, he, that he, in, in, he comes to Saul, right? He comes to Saul, and he says, uh, he, he says, Saul, you will suffer much. You will suffer much before you die. We'll talk more about that later. Romans 5 says they rejoice in suffering because it causes the growth of perseverance. When's the last time you celebrated when you went through hell? Said, yes, I'm learning perseverance, right? Chapter 8 of Romans, we are heirs and co-heirs if we are heirs of God and co-heirs if we share in his suffering. Do you, like, do you ever read that caveat to that verse? Okay. It's there. Go read it. Romans chapter 8. I told you to read this past week, right? In Philippians, Paul says, I want you. This is awesome. Actually, I hate it. I want you to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want you to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. See, there is something redemptive in suffering that grows us like nothing else ever could. Do we go and celebrate? Oh, so, yeah, this is awesome. I get that. I'm searching. I'm searching out suffering. No, no, no. But when it comes, we recognize there's something that's birthed in suffering. There's something that's birthed in this area of discomfort. There's something that's birthed inside of us when going through difficulty that's redemptive in nature, that shows us something about Jesus. We can never express and never learn at any other time of our lives, right? There's a risk of discomfort. In, in, in chapter 9 of, of Acts, I said, a second ago, basically what you see is this, and I want you to hear this, because I think it speaks volumes about who Saul, who later became Paul, is, and ultimately who we are as Christians today. Paul, going on the road to Damascus, he's going over here, and Jesus comes and just reveals himself and says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus. And he falls on the ground, right? He stands up, and he's blind. Right. When you come face to face with Jesus, something happens. He got blinded. 
And it says he went, his, his um, friends or his servants had to lead him either to a hotel or a house or somewhere. And he locks himself in a room and for three days, for 72 hours, God speaks to him. And God speaks and speaks and speaks. And God speaks to him about his calling, about being an apostle to the Gentiles, telling him all the things that are going to go on in his life. Basically, just begins to, to speak into his life. But it says in chapter 9, I read it a second ago, it says that God came, says, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Within a three-day span, God said, now, I'm doing all this for you, but I want you to know that you're going to suffer terribly. And I don't know if he literally sat down and told him exactly what was going to happen, but we know if you ever read the life of Paul, he was stoned to the point of death twice, right? He was on a prisoner ship, which are not fun. They took him off, take a break. He puts his hand in the fire and a viper bites on him like to think everything's going to die. He, 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 is, he, is, he is ridiculed. He's thrown into prison multiple times. Lots of, lots of other times he was only beaten and flogged to the point of death, right? A lot better than being stoned to death, right? All sorts of things. He suffered. He knew all of this was going to take place. But he was willing to risk the discomfort. You know, I think one of the stories that fits best, at least in our culture, because we're, not gonna, we're probably never going to get stoned for our faith, at least not any time in the super near future. The woman in Luke chapter 7, who had been caught in, I think, probably in prostitution, but she was a sinner. And Jesus comes into the Pharisee's house to sit down to eat. And it says the woman came in the door. And people are looking at her because they knew she was a sinner. And then she took her hair down, which meant she was a prostitute. And they, she came over and took this, uh, her whole life saving, right? It, it, it was her nest egg. It was, it was her only retirement plan. Uh, it was this perfume that was worth one year's wages, $65,000. That's kind of the median income these days, at least in our area. $65,000 worth of perfume, right, this jar. And she comes in, and she kneels down at Jesus' feet because she, he had saved her, right? And he kneels down, she, she, excuse me, she kneels down, pours it on his feet, takes her hair, and as she begins to weep and it falls on his feet, she begins to wash his feet with her, with her hair and the perfume and her own tears. And she's sitting there with the risk of discomfort, listening as all these men out here are calling her a prostitute, calling her a whore, calling her all these names. She's sitting there having to endure all the things they're calling Jesus because they're like, how could Jesus, this doesn't he know who she is? He's a terrible person too, right? All these people are mocking. All these people are causing her to be uncomfortable, saying all of these things. She's risking her reputation, right? She's risking her finances. She's risking the most valuable things in her life. It was uncomfortable. It was the risk of discomfort in an act of obedience, of worship before God. You think it's hard to raise your hands in worship on a Sunday morning? Why don't you start there and then so you can risk the much bigger things that actually matter in the full scheme of things for those who don't know Christ every day. The risk of discomfort. The third thing we see is this. The risk of invisibility. The risk of invisibility. You know, I was a history major for a short period of time at Georgia, and, and I loved it, right? And I, and I was thinking about, the, and one of the things they taught us in history, and I was thinking about it for some reason a couple of days ago, but I was thinking about the other day about the nature of history, that it's always written by victors. 
right? It's always written by those who win. It's always written by those who win. And so history, we know history from the winner's perspective. So imagine this morning if, if, uh, if the Redcoats had won, right? What if the Redcoats had, had won the Revolutionary War? We would, we would never have known who Paul Revere was. We would have celebrated Benedict Arnold. And we would have hated George Washington and considered him a traitor, right? Oh, he's a, he's a George Washington. He's a great guy. No, he's a traitor, right? No, right? We, we would never have known of Patrick Henry's give me liberty or give me death speech. We would have called him a, called him a, just a, a nut, right? Because he's a freak, right? Probably never even heard of his message. No, history is always written by the winners, so the losers never, we never hear about them, but guess who else we never hear about? We also never hear about the servants of the winners, do we? What are the names of the slaves that followed George Washington on all his treks? Because he had a bunch. Do you, know their, do you know their names? The names of his servants and his slaves who followed him every day of his time and going from point to point to point? No, you don't know their names. Why? Because they're insignificant in history. They are invisible. You see, the nature for us as followers of Jesus is the risk of invisibility. Do you know why? Because he must increase and we must decrease. We are to make much of Jesus and not make much of self. That we, in our following Christ, we should become more invisible every day. I think it is an oxymoron that we have Christian celebrities. I think that is fascinating in the worst way. Because true Christianity is invisibility of promoting Christ so that we become invisible. Now, yes... Jesus takes those people like Mother Teresa's and he exalts them and sets them up because he knows that they can handle the attention. How many of you know Christian celebrities who could not handle the attention that they ultimately brought to their cell, brought to themselves? If Jesus exalts you, celebrate it. If you can tell stories of how you made it happen, then woe to you. Because the risk that we take as followers of Jesus is the risk of invisibility. It's an oxymoron in church to promote self. I struggle with it. Struggle with it. Because in our culture, culture tells us, culture tells us, right, that you're supposed to work hard and make people notice you, right, so that you can receive praise for what you're doing and then you can climb the ladder of whatever the ladder is in the culture in which you live. And if you don't get, they don't promote you, then you have a right to be frustrated because you've earned it. Culture taught you that, not Scripture. The risk of following Jesus is the risk of invisibility. John 13. If you don't believe me, just watch. John chapter 13. The disciples are walking on the road with Jesus. Don't put it up yet because they're going to cheat. Walking on the road with Jesus. And he's ahead of them, probably doing ministry. And they're walking in themselves. You know what they're doing? They're arguing 
about who is the greatest. They're arguing about who is number one. They're arguing about who has climbed the ladder with Jesus and will sit by his right hand. They're talking, they're sitting here arguing about who is the best and who needs to be the leader and who needs to be the second in command. And in verse, excuse me, the verse 33, now you can put it upside, John 13, Jesus says, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He says that they must be invisible. And then he goes on immediately after that in the end of John 13. And he gives, he said, he says, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Let me give you the most profound example of that you'll ever get in life and what I mean by your invisibility. And he gives that uncomfortable story of Jesus taking off his outer robe like a servant and washing the disciples' feet. You want to talk about risk. In their culture, only the lowest of the low of servants, the, the, the most, the most uh, what's the word, servile, I don't know what the word is. Servile of all servants. I'm making that up probably, right? Most servantousness of servants, right? The, the greatest, the ones who are serving in the least roles. We would call them the Dalits in India, the lowest of the low, right? They would come and wash the feet. That's why Peter was so emphatic. He said, no, 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 no. You will never wash my feet. You are God, right? You are the Lord. You were my rabbi. You were the highest of highs. No, you shall never do it, right? God as a servant, this is a way, way too risky, right? This is way too uncomfortable. And honestly, it's way too scandalous in the culture in which we live to pursue invisibility. Jesus said this to his disciples. I have given you an example that you should do for others what I have done for you. Following Jesus means that you are taking and embracing and fully adopting the risk of invisibility. Serving as a primary component of your life. Everyone around you. And when you get tired of serving and giving your life away and being obedient, you let Jesus know, I'm just ready to go to heaven now like I prayed earlier. But if I'm going to stay, I will stay for the purpose of being obedient to you and serving and giving my life away so that those who don't know you can. Risk of following Jesus is always expressed. It's always active. And in that action, the reality of the risk that we're taking is the risk of devotion. These three things right here on the screen. The risk of devotion the risk of discomfort, and the risk of invisibility. And when you look at that, here's the paradox of Christianity. What seems one way was actually another. The paradox of Christianity is this. This is the type of life that in our culture seems hollow, it seems empty, it seems difficult, and it's the thing that we run from. It, but it's the very life Jesus was thinking about when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. 
For when I live a life embracing, embracing this risk, then God pours himself about upon us in measures we could never dream about. We have to remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, blessing, the fullness of himself to the humble. We all by nature are really bad at serving. It's not natural. Paul had to beat his body into submission to set before him the race that he was going to run. If he was going to fulfill the risk of devotion, the risk of discomfort, and the risk of invisibility, it was going to be a sacrifice on his part. Paul would, listen, I think a test this week for you. Here's a practical test for you. Do you, now, I've given you the test before, but you can take it again with this. You can think back to this past week. Did you spend more time thinking and talking about yourself? Or did you spend more time thinking and talking about Jesus? Did you spend more time thinking and talking about self? Or thinking about Jesus and the things that he was calling you to in your life? That's the test. Because the invisibility is that I have to decrease in all areas of talking about myself. And I must make much of Jesus. I don't make much of me. I make much of Jesus. So, this week, here's what you get to do. You get to wake up every morning and say, Jesus, I'm going to think about you first. right? I'm going to train myself, discipline myself. Jesus, how are you this morning? And listen. And then make much of him this week in your thoughts and in your conversation. Let's pray. Father.